Thanks, thanks for the audio head shake. We're on a podcast. <laughs> I, can, I can see you. <laughs> We're getting a YouTube. We'd probably be pretty good as clowns on a YouTube. Oh, God. The Jack Wagon YouTube channel. <laughs> Welcome to the Financial Independence Garage, where we give you the tools to repair your finances and unfold the roadmap to financial independence. Good evening, gentlemen. Good evening. Hello. I am the money mechanic. I am the accountant. And the economist is here too. You know, I think only our mothers can tell us apart. People have said we sound similar. Yeah, that's true. I've, I've been accused of that many times. People I don't, don't know. know which one of us is talking. It's hard in any podcast. <laughs> yeah, well, it's only one of us that's actually podcasting. We just have you use different voices for characters. <laughs> Wouldn't that be the greatest trick of all time? It'd be easier for you to edit too, probably. <laughs> oh, it certainly would. It certainly would. So, uh, beverage of this evening, gentlemen. What did you? Uh, well, I chose because I was I was the uh, designated shopper on Vancouver Island for this one. And fun fact that goes with this beer today. So, this is the Okanagan Spring Summerland Blackberry Ale. And I know the accountant has the same beer because I dropped some off for him to sh- to share the episode here. Do you know who owns Okanagan Spring? Because they used to be craft brewery but they're not anymore well i guess they're still smaller brewery but you know who owns them i thought it was is it it's not molson no no try again uh coors <laughs> oh, <laughs> no, which is that. molson coors so okay, i'll just i'll just cut that off because this could take a while <laughs> <laughs> is it sleeman's it is sleeman's and i didn't realize that sleeman's is actually owned by sapporo the japanese beer company and but and but uh <laughs> sleeman's is the third largest beer company in canada so there you go fun fact interesting yeah I knew. so yeah. anyway it is uh, getting into be summertime here so this is the blackberry ale and it says living in a place bursting with fruit of all kinds it's only natural that our beer would be inspired by it like this easy to pick blackberry ale oh sorry i should have read that all as one sentence <laughs> with a period in it because then it switches to french and we know we don't do french very well <laughs> So cheers. So the, you, the blurb's over. Cheers. That was, that was the short <laughs> that blurb. Was the blurb. Uh, we'll, well do the tasting notes here. What are you having, uh, Economist? You wouldn't email me one of those Okanagan Springs beers. <sighs> Apparently, we don't have that technology yet. Not yet. So I went to the uh, the cabinet and I got Colonel Taylor single barrel bottled in bond bourbon, and it it does have a blurb. So Colonel Edmund Hayes Taylor Jr. demanded perfection. His uncompromising standards for the highest quality whiskey are legendary. Accordingly, the barrel selected for this single barrel bourbon whiskey comes from the best location in the warehouse constructed by Taylor. Barrels aging in the heat of these warehouses are routinely evaluated to identify whiskeys with the richest and most complex flavors. These select barrels are allowed to age as long as necessary to reach their peak maturity. Each barrel is then bottled individually one barrel at a time for an uncompromised taste. This single barrel bourbon <laughs> and it is keeps a going. Tribute, <laughs> tribute to the legendary Colonel E.H. Taylor Jr., a name synonymous with topmost class whiskey. I, I really couldn't decide if I should read that last sentence. <laughs> it was going on for a bit. Yeah, well, cheers, gentlemen. That's the E.H. Taylor advertisement of the day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're always uh, very generous with our free uh, liquor advertisements, but uh, yeah. we just we just enjoy having them on the show. And uh, of course, for all the listeners out there, we now have the new feature on the website. If you enjoy the show and you'd like to support the FI Garage, you can go and buy us a beer. 
or around, whatever you choose. So check that out if you're interested. And on that note, we thanked our good friend, listener Jeff, who bought us our first round. Uh, he did ask us a question, and we figured it was worthy of a whole episode. And guys, what do you think? Should we talk about leveraged investing? Because it's a pretty common question. It is. It's a question I get a lot. Yeah. it's. I see it on the Facebook threads all the time. And I, I you know, I thought about it today. It was a little too late. I should. We should have put up a poll on the old Twit machine. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Because if like, we what knew people, how to do something like that. Well, I kind of figured it out, but I figured <laughs> two hours before recording wasn't going to get a lot of results. Right. Yeah, I'm, I'm not, I'm not into like the six digit followers yet. I'm not officially <laughs> an influencer. So anyway, so we're going to talk about leveraging and I think there are some misconceptions with this and there's definitely, it's kind of a polarizing topic because I think some people are okay with it and some people are, that's a hard no. Right. So, right. Yeah. We'll explore that a bit, but I think what we'll do is we'll read the question that Jeff sent in to us and uh, have a little chat around that and then move on to other exciting topics around leverage. And if I can find it, I had it. Didn't I tell you I had it? You did. You had it. I thought you even read it before we started started to read it. He had to switch to the intro so he could read that. (laughs) Oh, right. (laughs) I've got 15 or so tabs open. Okay. Just, I got it covered. (laughs) All right. So Jeff's question is... I have a buddy that recently took a large amount of his HELOC and invested it in an index fund. The thought that the market is almost, quote, on sale due to COVID, and it will almost certainly give him a 10 to 20% return over the next three to five years is why he took out the loan to invest. Seems like a good strategy to me as well. Wondering what all your thoughts are regarding this compared to sticking with regular smaller contributions, paying extra on your mortgage, etc. I'm just getting started on investing, finally in a position where the only debt we have is a mortgage and looking to maximize our disposable income. Well, first off, congrats that you your only debt left is a mortgage and that you're uh, getting involved in investing. So good question. Um, accountant, why don't we hear your thoughts first? Uh, my number one concern is that there was an assumption in there that you were going to get 10 to 20% returns. Almost certainly. <laughs> Almost certainly. Almost certainly. I guess if you were able to time the bottom, but we don't even get into market timing discussion. No. And I mean, I, I think that's a bit too aggressive of an assumption to use when you're using lever. You know, I don't think it's reasonable. If you happen to get 10 or 20%, great. But I think just because things are going really poorly right now and the market's dived, I don't think that you can make that assumption. So I wouldn't be running your numbers on leverage and if it's going to pay off or not using that high of a return value. I would try to stick closer to historical norms than picking the bottom. What do you think, economist? Yeah, I totally agree. Uh, I do. I do. I mean, we all kind of came back. It's a miracle. He agrees with me for once. Well, I totally disagree. I totally disagree. You think 40 to 70% is pretty much guaranteed some of the time. Uh, Yeah, you agree. You're absolutely right. The assumptions there. And, you know, I even struggle sometimes when lots of people are running numbers and they're using 8% 8% returns for a broad-based you know, global index and things like that. I mean, we just have to recognize that they're always an assumption. There's That's no right. guarantee going ahead, right? And I think you know, talking about from the leverage point of view is it's that I think so much of this discussion is going to come down to what we're going to find is it's going to come down to investor psychology. 
right? That Well, and that's a big part of it. And that's where I think right now, I've heard a lot of questions about people talking about borrowing to invest because people think the stock market's on sale and you're just market timing. It's just that you don't have the cash. It's not like you were sitting on the sideline with cash and now you're <laughs> trying to market time. You're borrowing to try and market time. It's true. So I think if you're going to leverage invest, I think it can work for people that have the right investor psychology and it can be a good plan when you think it out. But I don't think you do it as a, because right now everything's on sale. I think you do it as a, I understand what the advantages of using leverage are within a portfolio and that's why I'm doing it. Now, can we draw a little distinction between market timing and value investing? And what I mean by that is, okay, you've been watching say, a Canadian bank, and you thought it was too expensive for you at the late 2019 prices, but all of a sudden in March 2020, the numbers started to make sense for you. Yeah, I see where you're going with that. If, if you're an individual picker, or I guess you could look at it the same way with an index. I mean, you should just be going into the index regularly anyway, but... I mean, I guess yeah. the distinction you're making that you're not going to turn, like you're not expecting that, oh, hey, it's going to go up 25% in the next six months and I'm going to turn around and sell it. Like it's more of you were looking for value, you found value and you want to own that security long term. Right. Or even you could find value in an index, I suppose, too. Yeah. 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 Well, okay. So the other, going back to this question here is the other thing that I thought was interesting was the three to five year time frame. Right. I don't think you should put those kind of constraints on it. You should expect to be holding the the debt, which you've now taken from your HELOC, for a long period of time, right? Which is fine. And you need to be able to withstand short term volatility. Yeah. Because nobody knows what's going to happen going forward, right? So if, you, if you're need, if you need that money back, or if you want to have it paid off in three to five years, it may be too risky an assumption to to make that play. Unless you're borrowing the money off of your HELOC to invest so that you're investing a lump sum now and you're using your income to pay back down the HELOC within three to five years. Completely different story. Right. But I think any investment, a leverage investment should be intended to stay invested until retirement, right? Long term. Yes. I mean, yeah. Any, any leverage <laughs> investment should not be a short term investment. Right. All right. Well, let's get back to basics a little bit here for some of our listeners that are you know, this may be a, a somewhat new topic or discussion. We, oh, I guess we should just throw in our usual, uh, this is for entertainment <laughs> purposes only. <laughs> These are our opinions. We are not professionals. Don't take our, this is not advice. Uh, we're, this is infotainment, right, boys? Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. Anyway, what I was going to mention was that uh, there's different ways you can use leverage, but basically I think we would all probably advocate for TFSA and RSP first. But if we get into this leverage question, when people are starting to use their... See, <laughs> I, you, I, I, you, you always say TFSA and RRSP first. <laughs> I, I totally disagree. I think it's a, a great way to augment TFSA and RRSP. When you say augment, side by side, not using the leverage to put into those accounts. Right. You wouldn't want to... Uh, yeah, you don't want non-tax be deductible interest. Right. If you're investing in your TFSA and RRSP, well, you could borrow and invest in and start your cash account. Totally. Yeah. 
with right. with no money out of your pocket, especially if you capitalize the interest. Well, with less money out of your pocket. Yeah. Yeah. But okay. Let's just and we're skipping ahead again here. Basically, yeah. basically what we're gonna what leverage investing is talking about is accessing somebody else's money, whether it's because you have equity in your home and you're using a home equity line of credit to draw money out, you could get a, an investment loan from the bank. Yep. Account. What are other ways you can withdraw money? You could have a margin account within your brokerage that offers you, uh, they call it margin, which is essentially uh, a, the ability to borrow against your, your holdings. Your You've holdings. got an equity. You can borrow up to, I don't even know what it is in um, I'm in TD with the margin, and I've never used it, but I think they require 60%. You can borrow up to 60% of the equities, and it depends on which equity it is. Yeah, I think yes. it depends on that, a lot of factors. And I will say, I think we should caveat that like margin investing is the riskiest form of leveraged investing because if stocks sink drastically and you are no longer within those margin requirements, you can get a margin call, which will force you to either put more funds in to cover the difference, or they will force you to sell securities. So I would say just right off of it, margin investing, not a great idea because you get a big drop in the market, you can be forced to sell at a loss. Whereas if you took out a loan to invest, you can ride out those downturns as long as you're still making your loan payments and they're not going to force you to sell. Whereas when you're on margin and all of the security for that loan is the value of your stocks, if your stocks deteriorate a lot, you can get forced to sell into massive losses. Interesting. That's kind of like a HELOC, right? If the bank would ever call it. That's more a joke than anything. I, well, <laughs> I'm glad you brought that up because I was going to say the same thing because there's always the, uh, that's always the comment that shows up when this discussion happens in various platforms is, oh, well, you, you realize that your HELOC is callable. And I think, yes, we can accept that technically it is. The likelihood is fairly low, but it's interesting because we've just gone through a, you know, a massive, massive market downturn and recovery and, there's been there's still some unresolved questions of what's going to happen with people's debt loads and HELOCs and things like that. So, and the market is it really going to be recovered when we release this? And, yeah, I mean exactly. <laughs> let's let's not try and date things too much. I mean we are recording here in uh, sort of the middle weeks of June, so that just that caveats everything that we say. <laughs> things went poorly today. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, I think we can probably, I don't want to say it's safe to assume, but going on the assumption that if you have a good credit score and you have sufficient equity and you're using your HELOC, that's probably going to be the most common way that Canadians are going to access uh, some leverage to, to invest. And we've talked at length about the Smith Maneuver. Canadian homeowners. Canadian homeowners, yeah. <laughs> yes. And we've talked at length about the Smith Maneuver. So we're not going to draw that into this discussion, but that is a, a a good example of how to use leverage investing. So instead of that, though, I think what we're looking at here for the purposes of our discussion today is taking a large lump sum. Yeah. Right? Well, yes and no, because you don't have to do that. No, I mean, you could take $5,000. I'm not saying... Or you could you could take $1,000 a week for a year. Yeah, you're right. Oh, okay, I listened to... Sure. So, Interesting side note to that. Um, <laughs> the uh, we'll have to put it in the show notes, but the, the recent Rational Reminder podcast it was really interesting because Ben Felix did a little deep dive into dollar cost averaging versus lump sum investments. Right. 
Lump sum always wins. Lump sum always wins. Yeah. Yep. So it's, that was interesting. I, I enjoyed that because that's another common question, not to digress from our leverage discussion, but no. that's such a common question. And again, that's a super psychological question too, is do you feel yep. better putting in weekly or do you, like you're saying a thousand bucks a week, why not just pull out the uh, $52,000 and get it done with? Right. Yeah. No, I, it, it's true. And maybe it, you're, you're thinking, oh, the market's on sale. I don't want to time the market. Let's, uh, let's invest over the course of a year. <laughs> but isn't that, I mean, a lot of, we'll have a bunch of links in the show notes on different articles that have the math behind why leverage and investing can be a very big factor. And there's a bunch of books that have been written. And I think the number one thing that determines if leverage investing will be successful or not is your investor psychology. Because you have to stay the course if you're losing using leverage. Do you think we want to say that this is not a do DIY strategy? I think it's a DIY strategy for a more sophisticated investor. But if you've never invested a dime and you go with leverage off the bat, that's a bad move. I don't know about sophisticated, but maybe yeah. Uh, I don't like that word. Experienced, disciplined, disciplined, disciplined experienced. Yeah, maybe sophisticated. Who not knows the right if they're word, disciplined but... if they don't have experience in a downturn? So now you're talking only investors who were invested in 2007, right? You know, or 2020. Yeah, if you've weathered this storm without selling that, but it could get worse, right? <sighs> okay, here's one. For hey, you. the tire fire that is 2020 just keeps on giving. <laughs> So here's one for you though. 2019, people didn't want to use leverage because like the market's at all-time highs. But what we're really talking about here when you're discussing the mathematics of leverage investing is you're just trying to create an arbitrage between your cost of borrowing versus your expected returns with some tax calculations in between there, right? Because we're talking about all about non-registered accounts. Right. But it's in, it's interesting that nobody wants to leverage to invest when they think the market's high, right? But yeah. then but then when we've gone through a correction or in a recession, whatever you want to call it, nobody wants to use leverage to invest because they're worried about where the market's going and what the situation is. True. But interestingly, <laughs> in the real estate market, everybody wants to leverage invest when the market's at the high. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. So, I mean, we're just talking to psychology here. Yeah. Well, I think you bring a good point there is for any homeowner in Canada, they are, well, we won't even go into whether your home's investment or not, but they are, that's what they've done is they've leveraged yes. to invest in their, in their personal home. Yes. Absolutely. So it, it's interesting that people are very comfortable doing that for a property, but yep. they're very uncomfortable with the, with the idea of owning businesses. Yes. <laughs> and, and the reason I said it like that is because essentially you are owning businesses by owning the stock market. Yes. Yeah, yeah absolutely. That's, ex that's exactly what you're buying into is the future income streams of a business. And maybe it's some form of, or at least why people are more comfortable with investing in a house with leverage is they know they're le less likely to sell in a bad time. That's a very good point. But I mean, that's also why so many people get such large returns on real estate is they're highly leveraged on it. Right. So right? the same strategy can be used. The same strategy if you have 20% equity in the market and you've borrowed 80% and let's say the instead of the rent covering your mortgage, let's say your dividends cover your interest payment and you slowly pay off that loan and you end up with that big lump sum at the end of the day, you're probably going to have seen some pretty phenomenal returns. Yeah. But 
you have to stay the course and you have to be able to cover those payments should bad times happen. Right. No, it has to be money that you don't need. You mean you have to have the money available to cover the interest payments? Well, or the yes, payments. The payments. That's yeah. what you mean by money you don't need? Yeah. Well, I, you know, if it's off your HELOC, it's interest only. Right. Sure. But eventually you got to have a plan for paying that back. Uh, yeah. I mean, and I think that's. That's a that's a really good point. Now, I did read somewhere along the way in one of our articles here that uh, that we'll drop into the show notes that people could use the strategy to leverage to invest a lump sum because it would create a forced bill payment for them to pay down that debt. Right. Which is an interesting way of looking at forced savings. Yeah, that is right, and it. It was the youngandthrifty.ca boring money to invest article. And it says, uh, make investing a top line expense, right? So some folks aren't very disciplined about setting money aside for the future. So if they borrow to invest, it becomes a non-discretionary bill in the form of a loan repayment. So I thought that was interesting because I've never thought of it that way before. I mean, that is a good point. As long as you are disciplined enough to not pull that money out of your investments, well, yeah, exactly. I mean, I think we could probably stop the show right at the beginning, 30 seconds after we started and said, if you're not going to stay the course and keep it in there, then right, this is a, this is a non-discussion. But, you know, we've got a lot of advanced investors that listen to our show. And I think that's why there's a lot of discussion about this topic is because they, they understand the math. And I think we all probably overestimate our ability to stay the course. Do you know yes. what I mean? Right. And I think what the accountant was getting at was if you're not disciplined enough to invest in the market, why are you disciplined enough to stay the course when you ha- your stocks drop when you've implemented this forced savings plan? Well, that's right. Fair. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, just going back to saying you've got a 100K extra tab on your HELOC, right? Right. That's investment. Right. I mean, I, for me personally, having that extra debt load or extra um, money borrowed, it's tax advantageous to keep that borrowed. But I think the interesting discussion I find is because we're all on working towards financial independence and potentially uh, lower tax brackets because we're not going to be earning as much income, that affects whether you want to carry that debt once you're in a lower tax bracket or not. Accountant, do you want to just sort of do a high level on how the the tax advantages of carrying an investment loan? Well, it's it's essentially a write-off against your investment income. Against all your income, right? Against all your income, yeah. Well, yes. Um, <laughs> but in this, in this scenario, we'll say you're getting $1,000 in interest from your investments and you're paying $1,000 in interest on your loan. Well, that's going to cancel each other out and you're not going to pay any tax. Uh, no, I guess I meant by holding the debt the interest that you pay on your debt is a tax deduction on your gross income. Right. That's what I'm meaning here. Okay. Okay. I, you said interest <laughs> on your investment portion of it. And so this right, is- Right. But your, your, your investments that you're holding in a non-registered are going to bring in some form of income. And they have right. more or less. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And they have to. And you're going to get to write off the interest that against that income. But there could be situations where they won't bring in taxable income in the year. So you get to write off against your... That is very true too. Employment yes. But I mean, most of the time we're talking yeah. about index investing, you're probably going to bring in similar amounts of income against the amount of interests that 
you've leveraged. Yeah. So, okay. Well, I guess I'll just say what I wanted to say because you're not saying what I want you to say. <laughs> I can't read mine. Here you go. This is definitely for entertainment purposes only. You're about to get accounting advice from a mechanic. <laughs> I can't whoa, wait for whoa, this. Whoa, this, this is my opinion. This is an advice. Sorry. <laughs> accounting. Right, right, right. right. <laughs> I guess the point I was trying to make is that in current, uh, a rough current times, the interest rate has dropped. So the cost of borrowing is cheaper. So let's just use a round number. 3% is a kind of a HELOC number that people can borrow at right now, right? So it's going to cost me 3% on that $100,000 for a year that I've borrowed to invest. Disregarding the assets and what they bring in, when I file my taxes at, at the end of the year, I've got that $3,000 $3, that you get to write of interest. Off that I get to write off. And if my tax rate is hypothetically 30%, that people like to use the 30 or the 40. I, I noticed some articles jack the uh, tax rate right up to make the numbers look really good. But <laughs> yeah, you're, you're at the 48.7% yeah. yeah. rate. <laughs> yeah. They're, those people aren't listening to our podcast. <laughs> no. no, they are not. Um, yeah. So that what my point is, is that because you're writing that down on your personal taxes, you're getting a 30% savings on that $3,000. So it effectively reduces your interest rate that you're borrowing at. And what we said at the beginning is the whole point of borrowing to invest is the arbitrage between your expected returns and your actual cost of borrowing. I would right? say it's the arbitrage on your time horizon. Well, we'll get into that in a minute here. I know where you're trying to go to <laughs> with that, but I just, I just want to make it sort of clear for the listeners to see that it's you're paying interest, but you're lowering the cost of that interest with tax return. And then the rest of that can be offset by your gains from your investment. But a common misconception is that you need to hold a dividend stock in these leveraged accounts to pay for that. If you choose to do that, you can, but you don't yeah, have to. No, you don't have to. And it, you can get be an in, it can be an index fund. Right. And you but don't if, need to use the money, like the distributions, the um, dividends from your investments to pay for that interest. You can you capitalize can, it. It can come right out of the HELOC. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, accountant, but the income you get from your cash account could go to fund your TFSA, could it not? Absolutely. Totally. Yeah. There's nothing yeah. saying where the money actually goes doesn't matter. It's more where it shows up on your, like you're going to record that money on your tax return. You're going to offset it. It doesn't mean that you actually have to use that money to pay right. for it. It's just, that's where it's going to go. Yeah. Yeah. I saw a thread about this on uh, another Facebook group where they were just asking is how to service the interest. And it's like, well, you can pay it from your bank account. You can pay it from your investment returns. You can, it doesn't matter where, you're servicing that from it's it's just a payment into yeah we're using the HELOC example it's just a payment into the the HELOC regardless of where it comes from exactly and as long as the funds didn't go into a registered account and they went into an investment that has a reasonable expectation of profit they are tax deductible I think it's a reasonable expectation of income not profit profit potato patata yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Profit is realized income. Yeah. Okay. How many times Correct. are we going to have to say this is for uh, entertainment? <laughs> <laughs> so assuming that I wanted to borrow from my HELOC, let's just go through some basic mechanics of what that looks like. Well, I think you, uh, you take a lump sum off of your HELOC. You put it into a non-registered investment account. 
and then you invest that lump sum into low cost ETFs. There you go. <laughs> if 15 seconds, it never got easier than that. You, no. you can write a book. It just needs to be a quarter of a page. <laughs> I think it is It is that simple though. But what about from a an accounting point of view is it's important that if your HELOC's not only used for investments, there are some considerations that you need to track properly that the money that's been removed, you need to show a trail that it ends up in the investment account so that you, if you file your own taxes, that it's done properly. Is that not right? Yes, that's absolutely correct. You need to be able to have that trail if the CRA ever comes knocking to say, this $50,000 was taken off my line of credit, was put into the market, and I'm paying, you know, every year too, if you, let's say you have 100,000 outstanding and 50,000 is consumer debt and 50,000 is investment, I'm not going to recommend that this is a good scenario to be in, but <laughs> lo and behold, no. this is where you find yourself. You're going to have to calculate what was the total interest I paid for the year. And only half of that is going to be tax deductible because only half of that loan was used to invest. The other half is consumer debt. So to keep things simple, if you are borrowing off HELOC to invest, I would, I mean, preferably you have a HELOC with nothing drawn on it and you only draw down to invest. So you know that all of the interest is tax deductible, very easy to track. Yeah. I think it's just important to recognize that the tracking of it is very important for when you, when you file your taxes to keep everything straight. Yeah. yeah. Right. And that's why, you know, they've, people have talked about, especially with the Smith Maneuver stuff, is like having separate accounts so you, that you ha- can keep those records separate from your day-to-day banking and things like that. So as the movement is shown, it's a lot easier. I got myself into trouble with that moving into... I couldn't open up an account fast enough <laughs> to transfer out of my HELOC because the HELOC was set up to go where my mortgage payment comes out of. Right. Where I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa that's, I don't want it to... I don't want the money I'm taking out to go there. I want it to go to the separate account so that I can track everything properly. So mm-hmm. I think it's just one of those things where you have to understand all those kind of nuts and bolts pieces of this. Yeah. You know, we can talk all day long about, oh, you just borrow money and invest it. Easy as that. But you got to get into a little bit of the nuts and bolts and understand properly, especially if you're trying to do this as a DIY. And that's why I brought up earlier is maybe this isn't a DIY strategy for a lot of people. It sounds great. The math works, but do you have the time? Do you want to put in the time to do this yourself and manage yourself? And I don't know. We don't, that's up to you. That's up to the listener. Yeah. So. And I mean, it, it can be a very great strategy for getting a jump start on investing. You know, if you feel like you're way behind the eight ball and you should have way more assets invested, taking out a loan or pulling from your HELOC to jumpstart your portfolio is a pretty good way to go as long as you're disciplined and you have a long-term time horizon. Sounds like you've read the book uh, Life Cycle Investing by Ian Ayers and Barry Halebuff. <laughs> I have not, but I do know what you're talking about. <laughs> that was that was so canned. <laughs> it's like we could have dropped that in and people would people aren't going to believe that was live. <laughs> well, I, I was as he was talking, he was naturally leading me into it, so yeah. I was like, well, it's right here. I may as well just pull up the book cover so I can read it. <laughs> so, yeah, interesting because we did come across this life cycle investing and it came up um when I was when I had met Megan on the Explore FI Canada podcast. And I'm going to bring her on the show right now and she can run through what this is. And then we'll come back here and and discuss about our thoughts on it. 
Welcome to the show, Megan. You're on FI Garage this time. Last time we spoke, you and I were speaking on Explorify Canada. Yes. And we heard all about your expertise in the Smith Maneuver, which is very impressive. But one of the other things we didn't get into in that show is the whole concept of life cycle investing. And because we're talking about leverage on the show, I thought life cycle investing would fit quite well into what we're discussing. And I thought you might be the person to kind of lead us into what this is all about. Oh, it's so good to be back on the show. Uh, life cycle investing is one of my favorite financial strategies that we use to increase our own personal wealth and work towards our financial independence. Um, it's a little bit more complicated than the other strategy we had talked about, the Smith Maneuver. But for the people who are really finance-minded, this can be a huge lever towards increasing their their wealth and getting them a lot closer to their financial independence goals. So how does it work exactly? How did you find out about it? And what's the basic principles of it? Uh, okay, I found it somewhere on the deep, dark pits of the web uh, years ago and <laughs> <laughs> decided that it sounded really interesting. And so I bought the book and listened to some of the uh, interviews that the authors have given that are on YouTube. And the book is called Life Cycle Investing. It's written by two uh, Yale professors who are math geeks a little bit. Yeah. And essentially their idea is that with life with life cycle investing you allocate your investments between stocks and bonds based on the total that you'll invest during your entire lifetime and they call that dollar years so essentially you figure out how much of your income you're planning to invest over the course of your working career and let's say that you are planning to invest $10,000 every year for 40 years, which gives you $400,000 years over the course of your working career that you are planning to invest. So the author's premise is that you don't invest that bit by bit over the course of your career. You kind of front load it while you're younger, which allows you to take significantly more risk while you're younger. And what that does is not only does it get you into the market quite a bit faster, but for example, let's say that you wanted to invest 75% in stocks and 25% in bonds. So instead of taking, let's say you're that $10,000 that you're investing each year, instead of taking that and doing your 75-25 split uh, with life cycle investing, what you would do is you would add up the total investments that you'll invest over the next 40 years, which is the 400,000. And instead, you invest 75% of that DOF first. So this strategy is not for the light of heart, because if there are market fluctuations, anything like that, if you're going to panic sell, it's just going to completely defeat the purpose of this strategy. So I would not recommend it to uh, new investors who aren't kind of used to those market fluctuations. But essentially, uh, and they go into great detail in the book, so I would, I would highly, highly recommend you know, reading the book itself, but they ran thousands of scenarios going all the way back to the very beginning of the market and going over, like, so over 150 years. And what they found was that it worked, this strategy worked 100% of the time in those 150 years. 
and it increased the portfolios of their hypothetical investors by an average of 63% over the course of the 40 years. Pretty amazing. Yeah. It's pretty incredible. Yeah. I mean, this- they also advocate for borrowing as early as possible too, like using a two to one leverage yeah. to lever up and get those stocks invested as soon as possible. Too. That's right. Essentially, they're saying take all the risk while you're young. And then as yeah. you get older, you are deleveraging. And then eventually you would start buying bonds. So essentially, they break it down into a three stage plan where at first you're leveraging and getting as much in the market as you can with a two to one leverage ratio. So if you've got 2000 to invest, you would borrow another 2000 and you would buy 4000 of stocks. Um, And they're saying you do that continually until you hit your desired amount of stocks. And then you start paying off your, your investment loans or your leverage uh, and once that's paid off, then you buy your bonds. And by the time that three stages is done, you are ready to retire, but you are significantly wealthier than you would have been if you had have done your bit by bit strategy. And that's what this is trying to avoid is that bit by bit and just not not building up, trying to front load it to get that compounding working for you right away. So before we uh, before we sign off here, how... If just can you give us a little rundown of how you've implemented this strategy for your investing? Right. So the nice thing about this strategy is that it's incredibly flexible. And the authors talk about several different ways that you can implement either this strategy or parts of the strategy over your career, depending on your own risk tolerance level. Personally, I'm a pretty high risk type of person because I'm young and we have some some fallbacks like pensions for when we retire so I can afford to take more risk. So for ourselves, what we are doing is we are doing that two to one uh, leverage ratio. And I bend the rules a little bit when the markets really go down, I will go sometimes to three to one ratio. Uh, So the authors talk about if the markets have big movements, either way, you really need to stay on top of your, your balancing because as they start to go down. If some people have over leveraged, they can end up with things like margin calls and no one wants to get stuck like that. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, you have yeah. to keep an eye on it. That's why we're having this episode in the first place so people understand these things. Right. Yeah. It's something you can't yeah. just it's not a set it and forget it strategy. Uh, it's something you have yeah. to enjoy what you're doing and know what you're doing or use a, a finance professional who understands the strategy. Um, Ed Rempel who has been kind of featured on a couple of things. He he actually is really great with it and has put out a couple of articles on how he implements it for his clients. So it doesn't have to be a DIY thing. Uh, for us, I DIY it, but there are professionals out there who are good with it as well. For sure. Yeah, and again, like anything that we chat about on the show is if you're going to implement it, make sure you understand it, make sure you understand the risks and make sure it's going to work for your situation. So, hey, great description. And thanks for coming on for a little segment. We'll find a way of getting you on for a full episode one of these days. Sounds great. I can't wait to come back. Yeah, great talking with you. And uh, we'll chat again soon. Thanks a lot, Megan. Great, bye. So there you have it, the life cycle investing. And it's an interesting one, isn't it, guys? Because None of us probably thought about that in our 20s as borrowing as much as possible to get invested right away in stocks. Well, I mean, the last decade risk makes a lot of sense, right? You have a portfolio, you add a little bit all the time. And I mean, that's the, it's the beauty of compound interest. The further along you get, the more your investments grow. But that also means 
that last time period right before you retire, when you were supposed to be getting big returns, if you hit a period where you're not getting returns at all, you can miss 50% of the growth that you were expecting to have for a portfolio. Yeah, totally. And in this article by Ed Rempel here, The Ultimate Strategy for Millennials, Lifecycle Investing, he totally, he talks all about that last decade risk. And it's really interesting when you look at the numbers and you realize that for the first you know 30 years of your investing life, you have a very small amount of relatively small amount of money, but in like the last decade of investing, you have like 64% of your total investments are in that last decade and are really, you know, that volatility could really kill your portfolio in those last 10 years. Yeah. Well, the one that I found very interesting is he did a 40-year time period. And so if you get 8% a year for the Mm -hmm. whole 40-year time period, I think it was starting with about a million. You end up with almost $4 million. Yeah. It's the one he's got here. It's from the article. It's they, they've got his example is uh, Robert, fictional Robert, invest 10000 a year. That's what uh, it was, 10000 yeah. a year. Yeah. Starting at age 25 and increases it by inflation, blah, 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 with an average 8% return. And he did use RRSP just so let's keep that out there. We're not talking about borrowing this money to invest it right now. Right. But it, it's amazing because you take, if you got 0% for the first 10 years and then 8% for the remaining 30 years, you lose 15% of what you'd end up with. But if you get 8% for the first 30 years and then 0% for the last 10, it's a 52% reduction in what you end up with. Mm-hmm. It's huge. So, I mean, people talk about, we talk about all types of diversification all the time, but there's also time diversification. And I think it's important to realize that this fictional scenario of 10,000 a year doesn't include the amplification that will result because people earn more as they get older. Absolutely. Right. That, so that makes this even worse, right? Right. Exactly. Yeah. The whole life cycle investing strategy is, it's again, hugely going to come down to your investor psychology. And the point is, is that getting yourself highly invested as much as possible at the beginning right? As, as young as possible with, a, they talk about a two to one leverage ratio. What's the chances? Like I know 20 year old me, I didn't even know how to invest, let alone borrow to invest. And the, not the, to mention the bank wasn't, you know, necessarily <laughs> willing to lend you the money. Well, exactly. Yeah. That's yeah, a whole exactly. nother part of this conversation that I don't think we've touched on yet is it's a nice idea, but it's really only available to people who are already in a pretty good financial position. I mean, 20-year-old me wasn't getting a loan to go invest. No. I think where young people might be able to implement it is either if they have student loans or have access to get student loans that they don't need to use for tuition, say. (laughs) Or... Fun Uh, fun story. That's how I bought my first house. Yeah. So so you actually are on the life cycle investing plan. And and I didn't even realize it. Right. And the other way it might be done is if you're on a professional career track, banks will give professional loans. Yes. Because they recognize the growth in those occupations. Okay. But for your average, um, you know, mechanic, <laughs> whoa, <laughs> <laughs> it's it's going to be a lot harder to implement. Well, absolutely, yeah. And but you got to keep in mind though, as they talk about a two to one. So I mean, if you're able to put in, you know, your six thousand dollars a year, you're only trying to leave that up with another six thousand. 
right. right. I think one of the problems, I mean, it's pretty clear in, in some of the articles that we put in the show notes, the common thread is that mathematically, the strategy is great. It works, and they say it works 100% of the time. In reality, the implementation really isn't going to work that well. And so if you can somehow come up with a two-to-one leverage in your 20s, that's fantastic. And the idea yeah, of that is do well. Yeah. And you're not trying to pay that off. It's a gradual pay down. It's, it's like, it's the same thing. And I brought it up earlier. It's the same thing as going out and getting a giant mortgage with a small down payment. Right. It's yeah. exactly the same principle, except instead of a house, you've got that giant loan invested yeah. for you at the beginning with the most time to compound and grow. It, it totally makes sense. It's, that's why I, you know, I've, I have problems with it because the because we talk about the psychology and the implementation, but as a mathematical strategy for investment, it's very compelling. Of course, yeah. Absolutely. And I think for a lot of people too, a lot of the questions that I've seen is, hey, I've got my house paid off, I've got a rental property, and I've got this HELOC on my house, but I don't really have anything in the market. And I've just started to learn about it. And instead of me slowly building a portfolio, I have a ground of assets, but I want to diversify those assets and get into the market. Mm-hmm. I think it can be a really good strategy in that case of like, I can put an instant $100,000 into the market and now I have a portfolio. Instant I've diversification. Yeah. Right. I've, I've taken and I've added a little bit of leverage to one of my other assets in turn, like if you're pulling a HELOC or something like that, and now I'm in the market and I have, a, you know, different asset classes, I'm diversified. I think that's when it can be a very powerful tool for somebody looking and saying, hey, I don't have a retirement portfolio, but I've got this rental house and I've got my main house. Maybe I do pull from the HELOC and start building that portfolio a little more aggressively. Does not life cycle investing sound a whole lot like the Smith Maneuver at that point? Uh, At that point, absolutely it would be. Yeah. No arguments. Well, that wasn't as fun as I thought it was going to be. <laughs> <laughs> so go listen to our Smith uh, Maneuver episode at this point. And uh, you can find his book at uh, smithman.net. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. Well, yeah, lifecycle investing is really, it's one of those things that they assume that you're going to start in your 20s, but I think more realistically, it's probably going to be in like your mid-30s. In your 30s, yeah. Yeah. You know, maybe when you've, usually this is going to be, when you've got a house. And I think that's the compelling part is a lot of people have a goal of home ownership and sink a lot of money into that and prepay that mortgage down. And then there is the times that you go, oh, I've got this equity. Should I borrow it to invest? And that's you know what a lot of the questions are around this leverage to invest strategy. And it's maybe if you do this form of life cycle investing where you start that as soon as possible, and be consistent with it over the rest of your life. Like this is a rest of your life plan. Yes, right. do it. absolutely. Then we can say, yes, that's a great idea. If you know how to implement it and you've got a plan and a strategy. Um, and that's where I think it comes down to a lot. None of, I don't think, I mean, I know for a fact, I was n- never going to be able to look that far ahead into my future and make a, an appropriate plan. I think that's what holds a lot of us back is not, not having that understanding and not being very good at predicting our futures. Yeah. And I think one thing that's important is as is with any debt, I know that borrowing to invest is secured by the investments, but the plan is that those investments are retirement funds, Mm -hmm. whether it's early retirement, whether it's standard retirement, whatever. 
So you need a plan to pay back that loan. Mm-hmm. This isn't, I'm going to borrow it. I'm going to make, I'm going to triple my money and then I'll just pay back the loan with the proceeds of my triple. Like, and go to Tahiti. Uh, and go, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> you need to have a plan to pay it back. There's nobody listening to our show that's trying to make fast money. Come on. <laughs> Listen, from some of the we all like fast groups money. I'm in. <laughs> Fast cars and fast money. Welcome to my garage. It's a human condition. <laughs> Did we just entirely change our message in one show? We'd probably have more listeners if that was our tagline. <laughs> if it was fast, fast cars, cars and fast, fast money. money. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for the uh, first 45 episodes, folks, of my garage. <laughs> uh, that's perfect. I don't yeah. know. I think we should just end it right there. That was great. Fast cars <laughs> and fast money and we're out. <laughs> Before we do, what are what are you guys doing with uh, leverage to invest? Yeah, good question. I have, I don't know what I don't know what I want to admit here and what I don't want to admit. Well, got to admit all of leverage it. to invest to buy your home. <laughs> yeah, I think yeah, I've I do. Yes, of course, I leverage to purchase a home. I have not put a ton of leverage into the markets. I haven't borrowed a ton from my HELOC to put into the markets. And the main reason for that is because, and we'll see what happens, is that my intention is to diversify into real estate and, and leverage into that. Other than that, yeah, some leverage for index funds in you know globally allocated index funds. Not, nothing that I'm not comfortable with managing, I guess, is the best way to put it. Uh, could, could use more, but I choose not to. Um, it's, the focus has been filling up tax sheltered accounts and yeah so that's kind of the situation i'm in what about you account 99 percent of my leverage is on houses <laughs> um i do only a, only 99 yeah it's <laughs> there's no 99.8 point. Point how, <laughs> how come you're not using it all come on <laughs> <laughs> well i do have like a small margin position within my one of my brokerage accounts so you use the margin despite your advice to not despite my advice to not a I'm at like maybe 3% of my total portfolio. It's margin. Right. So it, it's the fact like I would, my entire portfolio would have to dip, disappear for me to get a margin call first. Right. Of all. Yeah. I am also guilty of market timing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I played some cruise ship stocks when everything went really bad for a little bit. But again, I've also talked about how I have fun money and that's, my margin account is part of my fund money and I keep very strict limits on what I'm allowed to take out of that. Right. So instead of playing with fund money, I have index funds in that account where I know that the monthly dividend payments I get out of or quarterly dividend payments I get out of my index funds will cover the interest on the limit that I've set for myself on the margin borrowing. So even if I lose all of that money, the funds that I have in there will pay that interest and pay that off in due time. Well, I'm, I'm worse than both of you because not only am I guilty of a market timing, I'm also <laughs> guilty of dollar cost averaging <laughs> with, my, with my leverage. So I don't have a HELOC, but I was given a decent interest rate on a personal line of credit under five from Tangerine. That's pretty good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I've used some of that to invest in a private REIT and some more of that to invest in the market. But again, it's not a huge 
percentage of my holdings and the payment on the on the line of credit is I've kept that to a preset goal. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, that's one thing that we didn't bring up earlier is you can you can apply for unsecured lines of credit. That's probably the first credit that you're going to be able to get. You know, I remember having one when I was younger to use instead of using credit cards at that point when I was out of school and finishing school and I didn't have any money, the unsecured line of credit was was a good way to use it. But yeah, you could totally have an unsecured just for investment purposes if you've got a good rate like you have. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm guilty of not doing enough work probably because I haven't tried to secure it with investments or RSP or anything like that. I don't think they'll let you secure it with market investments. Like I say, I haven't done the legwork. Yeah, I don't think they will. No, I think the only way they'll do it is margin within your account. They yeah. won't give you like a another one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting. Well, you didn't well, let me. Sorry, I, I'm interrupting you because one more thing. I looked at margin in Quest Trade, and the rates are not pleasant. ideal. Yeah, yeah, there you go. I think Interactive Brokers they keep sending me emails saying they have great margin rates. The the Quest Trade rates made it prohibitive. Interesting. Yeah. Well, I think we probably, apart from the account that's dabbling in it, I think the the idea of using margin from your non-reg account is not necessarily a great idea. Oh, well. I mean, well, you could double leverage yourself, right? Is you could borrow from oh, me you could. to buy your non-reg and then borrow against your assets in there with margin. Oh, I like that. Is that are you shooting yourself with that? <laughs> I am shooting myself. <laughs> yeah, Can you imagine that's... how bad that could that talk about yeah. amplifying your losses? One thing we actually haven't said is that that is what margin does, is it amplifies your results. So if you're using margin and you have losses, it's going to make those losses bigger. If you have margin and you have gains, it's going to make those gains bigger. Whatever it does, it's an amplifying tool. It's going to amplify your results. And what we're thinking is long-term, we're always facing gains. So you're going to amplify your gains. Right. So this, I think, is where we should turn to Japan. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> and remind everybody that if you margin invest made a, an investment with leverage in 1991 you haven't approached getting your money back yet hmm. yeah interesting but i heard a stat that if you'd invested in the 80s you'd still be making four percent yeah absolutely I, all i mean to yeah. say is no no that totally yeah it's not guaranteed nothing is guaranteed no exactly nothing. But you that's guys, where we talk about the risk, right? Yeah. When you're when you're borrowing, there is a risk that you could hit a 20-year period where you get no returns and you're paying interest and you're you lose money. Yeah. That's a possibility. Yeah. You have to consider it and accept it. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean that's what it, you know, basically this whole thing boils down to is understanding the risk and whether you can accept that or not understanding your ability to withstand volatility in the market and stay the course, right? So i.e. your investor psychology and having a long-term goal and a long-term plan. Yeah. These are the critical parts of it. I, I think it's too, you know, there's so much that we see the comments or the questions where it's like, should I borrow from my HELOC to invest? And you're looking at something in a very small time frame. You're looking at, oh, we had a correction and maybe I should do it now. You should be looking at like, I'm going to do this now because in 25 or 30 years, these are the reasons why it makes sense. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And if, if it's something you're interested in too, we'll have a bunch of different articles in the show notes that run through the numbers of a bunch of different scenarios. Yeah. That gives you a really good idea of what exactly 
you can get or expect to generate from leverage and investing. Now, you guys didn't let me read the quote I wanted to read about lifecycle investing earlier. So I'm sticking it in. I'm in charge of editing. I'm sticking this in. Okay. (laughs) Or are we just ending the show with it? Yeah, this is how we're ending the show. Well, we'll end the show after we end the show with the end of the show quote. (laughs) (laughs) I wasn't confusing at all. No. No. (laughs) Well, Uh, no more more confusing than our listeners are with the whole lifecycle investing idea. Perfect. At least we have Megan on. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Thanks, Megan. Uh, so this is Money Sense, the article we missed uh, mentioned earlier. And <laughs> the quote that I really liked from the whole article was, uh, I have no doubt that their numbers are accurate. And that's in reference to the authors of the book, right? But the problem with errors and nail buff strategy is not math. It's human psychology. The book does discuss cases where the life cycle strategy would be inappropriate. And one of these is, quote, if you would worry too much about losing money. This is stated casually, almost as an afterthought, but it's a fatal flaw. The strategy would work magnificently if you were in a coma and a computer were managing your portfolio. But it's hard to imagine that more than a tiny percentage of non-comatose investors would have the stomach to carry it out. Well, that was long. Yeah, you know, at least we're (laughs) going to get more questions from the listeners about <laughs> leverage investing now because you know it, it's a big subject. It's tough to cover. And again, it's going to come down, like we said, it's going to come down to people's opinions. So many people in the FI community are super debt adverse. So this is a not, not even a starter. But then a lot of people are also trying to maximize their opportunity to get money in the market and invest and, and make long-term gains. So yeah, personal finance is personal. Got personal. it in. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Any parting thoughts, Count? No, I think it's. Uh, I think if you're looking to jumpstart a portfolio, it's a very good strategy to look at. It's you need to understand your own investor psychology very well before you do look at it. Yeah, understand the risks. All right, listeners, thank you for checking out another episode of the FI Garage. Remember, you can go online and buy us a beer, and I think we all have some referrals on that page too. If you're opening up a margin account at Questrade or whatnot, support the show. We really do appreciate that. And what we like more than that is comments sending us a comment or a question we enjoy doing some research on that because we learn a lot and hopefully we bring a little bit of back to the show for education purposes i mean i i'm still not sure that we answered the original question but (laughs) (laughs) Uh, we we danced around it enough (laughs) okay perfect i'll try again next week there you go all right talk to you later boys farewell good night